0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Uh, Michael, how are you? I'm fine. I'm
1: looking out the window and the trees are green, the sky is blue and the sun is yellow, so all is well with the world.
0: So a couple of things to run through uh, this week. Obviously, there was the leak from the US Supreme Court on Roe v. Wade. We'll touch on that, mostly just to explain what is and what isn't happening, because there seems to be a great deal of confusion about what the fall of Roe would actually mean. Uh, Some of that, I think, is motivated, Michael, people wanting to present particular outcomes as likely when they're not. And some of it is just because, well, not knowing what they're talking about has never stopped someone from talking about it as this podcast is <laughs> we are living uh, proof shining yeah, exactly absolutely
1: off. and we're delighted to be that
0: and as is becoming tradition there's also a study that came out this one on um, non-religious teachers in irish schools that I wanted to talk through but there was one thing i just wanted to mention um as a little kind of object of interest that hasn't really gotten a lot of coverage. Now, the Business Post has an article up on it today, which I'll put a link to, but that's paywalled. But the basic gist of it is, of the situation is this. Obviously, there was the mica problem up in um, mostly Donegal and a little bit of mayo, where you're seeing defective blocks basically slowly disintegrating the homes they were built into. Yep, it's a bad thing. For everyone, but particularly for the state who is going to have to pay for those things to be uh, restored or rebuilt and is looking at quite a quite a chunk of change on that problem bad
1: thing for all those poor gobshets out there whose uh,
0: wages are generated in order to pay the state the monies the state is going to use to do that so here is the actual problem there while the mica situation was terrible it was contained there is now a um concern That the problem might be substantially more widespread than has been understood, and there may be materials other than MICA which are causing a problem or are likely to cause a problem in the future. So you're saying it may not be just MICA? Yes, so there has been a a very quiet uh, attempt by parts of the government, some of the departments, to try and figure out exactly how widespread this problem is, and if they are correct to be concerned that it uh, is going to become worse substantially worse and the problem there is if it does become substantially worse and it starts popping up in multiple other counties well the government has already agreed to a scheme on the basis that it was only Donegal and it's going to be very hard politically Michael to tell other people whose houses start to disintegrate that uh, you don't get the same deal. Well, you say only Donegal. I mean, yeah,
1: mostly Donegal. I mean, I think it, it's Leeds and Leeds and Sligo and there's a little bit... Was there something happening in Clare as well? But, yeah, but fun, yeah, fundamentally, yeah, it was mostly... But just because it was only Donegal, it was still running into the bi- billions, and I say that with the B rather than the M for million. It was running into the... Billions, potentially, or billion, anyway.
0: Well, it's it started at a billion, and then it kind of quietly grew to about two million, billion, and I think it's continued to grow.
1: And if we're willing, willing, I say willing, yeah, if we're willing as a nation, as a state, as a people, to pay all, all, some billions to, to people who've chosen to build houses in Donegal, and you know, that doesn't automatically demand some kind of a discount, because... As there is a principle in Scottish law that you know, if you aggravate your own injury, well, you the amount of compensation you can expect should be diminished. Mm. But rather, this is going to spread out into the whole of the island of the of Ireland, and it's going to be widespread. And you know, houses built in places that people could
0: reasonably want to live.
1: I mean, is it? It's just never ending. Is it, it's,
0: no, it's, it's something to take account of But well, both of you are a homeowner and if you're looking to buy a house, but it also comes at possibly the worst possible time. Material costs have gone insane. I mean, you're starting to see reports of construction companies who have tendered for, for uh, projects both in the private and public sphere, have to go back and say, well, we can't do that project. We would lose money if we did it at the price that we tendered it at, so we're not going to do it. You have a situation where the state is saying it will give up to 120,000 to developers in certain areas, basically just to ensure that those developers build in those areas because the cost of materials have gone so high that it just doesn't make sense to build in certain areas anymore. I mean, we have seen... I've seen... um Estimates of houses that were to be built that were priced a year ago at three hundred thousand and are now being priced at four hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand. That's uh,
1: mind-boggling uh, to say that you, you you go you get your mortgage you've saved up for your deposits you've got your twenty percent yeah whatever it is and you think you're going to have your nice house and you're going to be able to build it and then they say well we can't build it now because we're a bit busy or we're a bit tight and actually it's not going to be three hundred and fifty it's going to be three hundred thousand before fifty. Or five hundred—is that okay? Because yeah, it's only another two hundred thousand of the mortgage. The
0: bank will be fine with that. This is this falls under what the classic nightmare scenario. If this situation continues, it'll start to cascade. So you'll see all of the people who would have had houses built will go into. They'll either continue renting or they will attempt to source houses that have already been built. Mm -hmm. That'll push those prices up. That combined with the fact it's become too expensive to build realistically in many areas of the country will also contribute to prices going up and because of the mortgage caps of 3.5 uh, times although you can get higher you just need to get a um you just need to get a, an exemption will mean that like there is a hard cap on how high most prices can go before you just can't sell them yeah so that goes badly enough you're gonna start seeing construction companies go bust And this is a time when, the not that long ago, the principal
1: concern with the nature of the business and with the stresses would be that people, that these construction companies would be too busy, that we didn't have enough capacity. And this is actually still true. We don't have enough capacity within the economy to do all of the things that we want to do, both at the level of building of houses to meet the chronic shortages that have developed over the last 10 years. We don't have enough uh, capacity to meet the expanding population. We don't have enough capacity. When you consider half a million, Gary, half a million houses are going to be refitted and made uh, energy lovely. And then on top of that, we're going to have, we're going to house, who knows, 10,000, 20,000 Ukrainian families. And I'm not making, I'm not saying that in the tone of a man who says we shouldn't, but throw that into the pot. That has to be done. Now, it is nice to see that there are still I don't know, did you see, Gary, there are still sensible solutions available. Uh, was it Richard Boyd Barrett or one of the nice people from People Before Profit who said the obvious solution is the state must go in and take over private property?
0: And if a referendum must be held, a referendum must be held, Michael. Absolutely. And I'm sure it would fly.
1: <laughs> imagine which do you want to give the government the, the right to take over your property or your house in order to give it to Ukrainian people I mean I can't see that not passing can you
0: I saw one of the uh, the respectable of the left-wing housing academics the people who say absolutely insane things but say it in a calm voice that won't startle you the ones
1: that say that actually supply has nothing to do with Restriction in supply has nothing
0: to do with price. Actually, yes, one of those people. Uh, I saw them come out and they're talking about the maternity hospital. Yeah. And they said that the maternity hospital should be uh, CPO'd. And if this required a referendum to give the state greater rights to seize private property, then that was perfectly fine. And it's just sort of, do you listen to yourself when you're talking? Or do you just fade in and out? (laughs) Just... You want to have a referendum on can we have the right to take your property more easily? You know, if you said
1: specifically in the amendment to the Constitution that it's wicked nuns, priests, and brothers who are probably connected to the Illuminati and played a significant role in the Da Vinci Code, which is, by the way, a mixture of history and documentary and not fiction, like a lot of people think, then it would be okay. As long as it wasn't real people, just specifically. You know, people that might have appeared in the Da Vinci Code,
0: then I think it might pass.
1: I wouldn't underestimate, Gary, the capacity to get uh, past uh, a law in this country which was based on the demonization of people involved in the Catholic Church. I think uh, you could do pretty well anything to them right now if you got a good wind in your sails and the Irish Times and the Independent on board.
0: Yeah, you you might actually get fair, and I'm sure there would be very strong promises made that they would never use those powers against anyone else. Never, ever. And um, they wouldn't. Unless they really needed to. Yeah, really, really needed to. I mean, really... Double That goes without saying Double Dare Dutch
1: needed. I mean that kind I mean at that level obviously I think people will understand.
0: Yeah, so I, I just think that's uh that's something to keep an eye on. The construction sector is not having a great time. Even the very large companies are struggling to get materials. There have been times when they just can't get certain materials. And uh we are Going to rebuild all of Donegal. We're going to build tens of thousands of new houses. We're going to retrofit half the country. And, um yeah, it's all combining to be just an absolute shit show.
1: Even before the
0: police action,
1: is that the correct phrase? The police action in the Ukraine? Our special military operation, is that it? It was a police action in Vietnam, wasn't it? Anyway, I think it's a special military operation in, in, in the Ukraine. Even before that was happening, I was talking to somebody who works in the... Uh, In the construction industry, as they call it these days, builder. And he was saying that he was dealing with people, uh, you're getting uh, fittings and stuff that you put in houses like windows and stuff. Stop me if I'm getting too technical. And that apparently there was already last year a chronic global shortage of MDF and had been for some time. Now, it turns out, Gary, virtually everything in the world is made of MDF. And they were, they, the, 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 the crew he'd been working with in the, in the country in Central Europe where he was uh, supplying, getting supplies, had been previously very happy because they had seen this coming down the road and had signed up contracts for more than two years in advance for what they thought would be enough. But actually, they were saying it turned out that they may have, they may struggle. And this is the people who hadn't done uh what they had done and we're now just uh, are cottoning on we're going to be in very serious trouble and that was before the war in ukraine and all the consequent problems caused with supply chains and inflation because of the changes in energy supply and blah 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 blah, blah. so it the thing is it's very hard to see what actually any government can do my suspicion is that the more they try to do the more they're just going to end up Messing it up and costing a lot of money with actually
0: very little positive outcome. There's also uh, another, just on kind of on this area, Michael. There's an article in the Business Post by Daniel Murray, who's very good on um, anything related to energy. Uh Uh-huh. And it is state-to-double imported emergency power generators amid new supply fears, more than 300 million a year. Apparently, the gap between electrical supply and demand continues to grow. It quotes... Uh, Martin Ferris, or I'm sorry, Martin Fraser, who's the country's top civil servant. And not Sinn Féin today. As saying, at a recent uh, energy security emergency group, which is the government's newly established please God tell us how to get this working again group, mm-hmm. <laughs> To his quote is, consider the worst case scenario, and whatever that is, plan for worse than that. <laughs> oh, So
1: he's the happy, cheery guy at the party.
0: (laughs) Now, it's interesting, as this is presented as um, largely in the Business Times, it says this is largely due to the the proliferation of data centres. It's not, Gary, it's Ukrainians. They
1: come over here, they suck up all the electricity. You look at the Ukrainians, you see that they're just full
0: of electricity. I'm telling you, it's true. It also says that this is coming about as Europe braces itself for an energy crisis due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Which is odd phrasing, considering it later points out that, you know, the proposals from the EU to reduce Russian gas imports by two-thirds and phase out oil imports. You're like, I suppose that technically happened because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it's sort of its own thing.
1: Mm,
0: Well, but it wouldn't have happened without it. Yes, but it's the sort of, that happened, and then this happened, and there was absolutely nothing we could have done in between those two things.
1: Well, what you could have done, Gary said quietly, is not become utterly dependent on Russian gas in the first place. you could have if only guy if you had listened to wise wise experts in this area like Donald Trump, who told you, don't
0: rely on the Russians, just gonna put this out there. I think quite a lot of people said for many years, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't be doing this. And the Germans basically went, we can't hear you over the sound of all of this cheap energy. No, 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 no. Yeah, but that's the thing though, Gary.
1: They got cheap energy, but they could have actually got cheap energy from other places.
0: Well, I mean, they also could have, you know, not shut down all of their nuclear power plants after a uh, earthquake in Japan.
1: I was listening to a very fun conversation in one of those things, I think was the something like, you know, it was the the centre for... Policy and defense studies in Washington. One of those groups, I think, mean, fun, happy groups. And there's a guy talking about Germany. He said, "Well, you have what has a certain per- perception of German Germany and German politics. If you actually look at since the Second World War, what they tend to do is they they will do nothing for a long time, and then they will have these massive lurches of policy to the left or to the right. So, for recently, we have seen this example where it was an absolute principle of German policy that they would never." sell arms to any nation that was involved in war that's gone it was an absolute principle that they would not give into pressure with nato to spend two percent the minimum which was two percent of your gdp on defense spending that's gone Um that they would be absolutely they would be opposed to the expansion of nato or blah whatever that and there's been this seismic shift the last one was when there was uh, an earthquake in Japan and Germany decided on the foot of that, oh God, we better close all our nuclear power plants down. So, I suppose the question, so the, uh, the direction of German policy maybe isn't always quite as pragmatic and practical and worked out and logical as it should be, or that we like to ascribe to them because we like to think of the Germans as being, I suppose, better than us. Maybe they're not really that much better. Of course, they are better than us. But, I mean, that goes without saying. But I mean, they're not that much better than us.
0: So, Michael, I suppose we may briefly touch on this. Roe v. Wade and the leak from the Supreme Court. So this, this is quite a confused situation. I found it's not confusing. It's just people have kind of gone a load of different directions with it and exactly what's happened. So what's happened is a, a draft opinion of the court has been put forward. So the way the Supreme Court of America works, it works in secret up to the point of um, publication of its opinion and its rulings. From the time those rulings are written to the time they are released, justices can freely change their opinion, and they commonly do. So there is no way to be sure that the opinion that has been leaked is actually going to be the final opinion of the court.
1: It's also the case that sometimes, I'm not saying this is this, this really the case in this case, I suspect it isn't, but the opinions that are for debate and for to discussion are also there to provoke a response or to provoke an, a part of the debate and discussion that will occur within the court and may not absolutely and perfectly at this moment in time reflect the judicial opinions of the justice involved.
0: No, so what can happen is the initial uh, opinion is very, very strong, very provocative and then it gets weakened or occasionally even strengthened as it's debated back and forth. It does strongly indicate that when this case is finally ruled on, which I think is expected in kind of late June, early July, Roe v. Wade will fall. Well, I mean,
1: we shouldn't understand it either, Gary, in the sense that it it, it had for a very long time, It I think, it, or it, it felt like, a kind of a discounted that the way this was going to evolve was that Roe v. Wade would not be overturned, but would, it would be nibbled away at at the edges to such a degree that the it would be emptied, it would be hollowed out as as a decision. But most people had kind of come to the conclusion. when well, it was Starrett this this idea that, which is a, a not a it's a, an unusual or strange idea in constitutional law in the United States or anywhere, that you have to allow for the existence of precedent. That okay, you may not like decisions that have been made in the past by the by your by the court, but that you can't just go around willy nilly overturning every precedent, every preceding judgment. Because if you do that, there's absolutely no consistency or predictability to the law, and that you have to have that for a legal thing, system to function. If nothing else, how I mean, how are the, how are lower courts going to make their decisions? If it isn't, with at least in part, with it with, refer, with reference to, to preceding decisions made by the higher courts. Now it does look like the well, even with the the admission of uh, Elena Kagan and Sotomayor to the bench, there is a majority for the overturning, which didn't seem to be the case before. I mean, I I, I don't know how closely you've been following this case. I've been following it reasonably closely. Is the consensus that Roberts is on board? The chief justice, because chief, he had kind of taken on that role of being the middleman of trying. He felt that he had as the chief justice, one of his jobs was to try and keep the court in a sense together. It's also worth just passing by. The court actually most of the time is together. The large majority of the time, these decisions will come down 7-1 or 6-1, 7-0, 6-1. Because the vast majority of the time, the court isn't deciding on things like the death penalty or abortion. They're deciding on antitrust laws or corporation tax or whatever. You know, it's far less in hot, hot-blooded, hot sexy stuff. And most of the time, the court is together. But on these cultural issues, that there was a perception that Roberts had had a sense that he had to try and be a balancing figure rather than a polarizing figure on the court. So, sorry, Gary, you were saying?
0: So, it's unclear which way Roberts will go. Uh, as you said, there has been a feeling that Roberts has deliberately, uh, on cultural issues, been keen to put space between him and some of the other conservative justices. And there has been arguments as to, you know, the rightness or wrongness of that, considering it is generally felt to be artificial. So we don't quite know where he would go with this. It's also important to note that this wouldn't, if this opinion goes ahead as it is, it wouldn't just get rid of uh, Roe v. Wade, it would also get rid of uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was a, a later case that also is very impactful here, although talked about much less. What is interesting about this is this roe v wade on a legal basis has never been considered good law
1: and that would be that's the case when you talk to liberal or progressive jurists jurists as well it's pretty well universally agreed that as a piece of constitutional law it's crap what they what the court ultimately decided to find and i think that's a best way to describe it. they decided to find it rather than they found it. First of all, they decided to find that there was a right to privacy in the American Constitution. Now, the Americans have what they call the Bill of Rights, which was a series of amendments which was appended to the Constitution very serious, very soon, very early on in the whole process. And they found in three different articles that the right to privacy subsisted in those articles. There is no explicit right to privacy, but for example, there is a right not to have troops billeted on you without your consent. Uh and and other and then there's a right there's the right not to have a, a warrantless search executed against yourself or your property. Anyway, it was decided that the right to privacy subsisted within the within these uh these amendments. What this is sometimes said they they found the <laughs> certain rights are found to exist in the penumbra of the Constitution, the penumbra being the shadow. It's not actually in the heart it's not there in the text. But in the in the shadow that the text casts, in the number of the constitution, these things are found to exist. So having decided this, there was this explicit federal right, this constitutional right, and that's the the important thing, that the constitution, if the constitution guarantees it at a federal level, then all of the other all of the states must recognize that exists. Second part of it was that within that right to privacy, a woman therefore would have the right to have. unimpeded access to abortion because this uh well also there was an issue of broadly integrity but anyway that's that's another thing but but abortion was found the right to have access to abortion was found to exist within the right to privacy and so therefore they established what was a constitute at a federal level a constitutional right to access unimpeded abortion and that was and this was to say, this was just seen to be a radical innovation, because up to now nobody had ever questioned that, ever thought that there was such a thing as a right to uh, abortion in the constitution. Whatever about right to privacy, certainly that that such thing as a right to a, a abortion existed. Now it's worth I think the big thing here, Guy, for the explanation is what this is not is in some sense an insertion into the American Constitution of a ban on abortion or a recognition. ...about the nature of the moral or the the legal status of the unborn child.
0: The removal of Roe and uh, Casey will not ban abortion in America. It will effectively return it to what it was before 1973 when Roe was decided... ...which is to say it will go back to the States. An interesting thing here is that the people arguing against the removal of Roe... ...are not generally arguing from a legal perspective. They're arguing from a social perspective that Roe is a socially positive finding. Yeah. Because legally, it's always been incredibly weak. So, now, while we say that won't lead to a ban on abortion, there are a certain number of American states who have what are called trigger laws. And those laws say that the second Roe is is, is removed, that new laws will be put in place, usually these will restrict or ban, in some cases, abortion. So you will see, I think it's somewhere around 25 states, which, as soon as Roe goes, will heavily restrict abortion. The interesting thing, actually, here, Michael, is, and you've probably seen people claiming that most Americans are against the removal of Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Most Americans do say they are against the removal of Roe v. Wade, but most Americans also say they're in favour of restrictions upon abortion, which are impossible, as long as the current legal scenario continues. Yes. So you're getting a lot of people pointing out the first part, but not particularly pointing out the second part.
1: Yeah, it, it, Gary, to put this, it's not unknown in the United States or indeed even in Ireland for people to answer a series of questions in an opinion poll that seem to be on the face of it contradictory. So what the sense that when people ask, do you favour the overturning of Roe v. Wade, what mo- most people say, well, yeah, I'm opposed to that. But if you ask them, are they in favour of abortion up to 40 weeks, then they'll say, no, I'm opposed to that too. And the problem, at least the perception, of the, the, some people would say the problem, there, therein lies the problem, because if you have one, you then you have to have the other. So it's just, just to point out, Gary, uh, if my memory serves, uh, before Roe v. Wade, there were places like, say, the state of New York, where it was perfectly legal already, to uh, perform uh, or procure an abortion. There were other states where it was not. And that is, uh, I, I I don't know, I mean, what your opinion on this is. My sense is that the actual number of states that will just have a blanket ban on abortion will be very
0: small indeed. I, I would suspect so. Before Roe, there was sort of a, a bit of a tide of, of um, liberalization of abortion laws. And then Roe basically shut that down and in many ways actually strengthened the pro-life movement because it gave them this, you know, giant thing that they could all aim at. Yeah. And it was very clear. It was actually functioned much the same way the Eighth Amendment did in Ireland. It gave activists a very clear target. So I I would say when this, if this does happen and and Rowan, Casey fall, I would suspect you're probably right that there will be a few states who will go for effectively outright bans. A lot will restrict them probably to be more in line with uh, where the American public is. And then you will have some states that will um, make no changes or may even widen um, access to abortion as a counter-push against this.
1: You'll have know, states like New York, California, Washington, Vermont, possibly, uh, Massachusetts, those states which would classically fall into the the very liberal, the very progressive uh, 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 columns where you'll have one. Then you have, you may have states perhaps be like Mississippi or Tennessee, which are perceived as being very much on the, the other end of the, the spectrum conservatively who might do something. But I think the vast majority you'll see it'll be based on, it'll be time based restrictions. Some will go for 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it will be. They'll, and that will, what will be inter, I mean, it's, it's, it's a slightly macabre observation, but what this will do, Gary, is it will take you know that massive intense vituperative of debate that that took place outside of the on the steps of the Supreme court it, it's going to take that out of washington and bring that to the to the to the to the steps of the courts and the legislatures across the united states this is suddenly this is now going to be in a way it already was to an extent but now in a really radical way it's going to bring that debate down to the states levels it's not going to make a mo- it's not going to contribute to the depolarization of american politics
0: so you'll end up with this basically patchwork of states that are going to take different uh, views on it and implement it in different ways which is pretty much exactly what the us constitution wanted to happen so if you look at the, the 10th amendment which says that all power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution and nor prohibited by, to it by the states, I believe, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. You sometimes hear it referred to as the laboratories of democracy uh, idea that a state can do something without putting national law at risk or putting the country at risk and that then if it works, other states are going to copy it, but that each state is free to, to choose how it works in certain uh, certain ways, which is a bit of an odd idea I think to many people in Europe. Yeah I think
1: I think we forget that the United States is or that it used to be the United States are before the Civil War is actually a federal is a federal it's a federal s- country and we forget to the degree to which there is this hierarchy of governments the federal government the state government the county government the town government and all of the various police forces and Rules. So taxation, for example, I mean, classically a classic example is taxation. You're going to have radically different uh, tax structures, varying from state to state. You're going to have different regulatory systems, which is why you may see people moving from California to Texas or Texas to California, depending on what at the, the the moment in time and and what what they see. There, you have a diversity, and we all love diversity. There's going to be a, there's a real diversity that ex- coexists or subsists within the the federal structure
0: and i like i quite like that system because if you're in let's say texas and you don't like the abortion law and you feel very strongly on it you can move to california or you can stay in texas and you can try and change it there but it it gives rise to really interesting kind of things like did you know michael there are nine states in america that have no state income tax
1: I was aware that there were a certain number that had no state-income tax, yeah. And then there are others where they have really very significant state-income tax. you've somewhere have their sales taxes instead of income
0: taxes. That is, that is what is happening and that is what is going to happen. There will not be a nationwide ban on abortion. I think when you're looking at the arguments against this, and it's interesting because I've seen even kind of legal professionals in the American media do this, it is all social impact. No one is trying to actually say on the merits of the law, yeah, you know, we should keep Roe v. Wade.
1: Yeah, the also, ulti- I, I, I don't want to be unfair to them, but it, when I read the arguments, the legal arguments of the people who are in favour of maintaining Roe, it always seems to come back to the sense that, well, there should be a constitutional right to access abortion, and that if the framers had thought about it and they had lived in this time, then they would have put one in. And the Constitution has to evolve and respond to our evolving and uh, improving moral sensibilities. So we have to say that there is a right to uh, access abortion. Even if we can't actually put our finger on that place in the Constitution which says that there should be a right. But there should be because there should be.
0: Yeah, that is a very, very popular legal philosophy amongst more the progressives than the liberals because a lot of liberals would not go for that sort of, I I think that is just a a recipe for out-and-out judicial activism, and it's one that the Republicans find totally odious.
1: Well, yeah, but as long as it's, well, yeah, when when it's judicial activism that they don't like, I mean, let's not... I mean, there are times when, you do, when Republicans can look pretty activists as well, when it's going in the other direction. I
0: mean, when you look at people,
1: the position, say, on
0: flag burning. sure we say that no side is, is innocent of this? But only one side seems to constantly argue for it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, as a sort of a theoretical construct, yeah,
0: I would say that was that's fair. I also, I mean, my point on that would be the American Constitution contains within itself Provisions to amend the constitution.
1: Exactly. I mean, if you want to change it, no, I haven't said that. <laughs> Let's not. It's not easy, Gary.
0: No, it's not easy. But if you're if you're going to say that, well, society has changed in these ways, and you know there is an uncontested right, and all of these things, well, then amend the constitution to reflect that because that is how it's designed to do, not to find new things in it. You have to get two
1: thirds. Of both houses of Congress to approve, uh, or is it two thirds plus one? Two thirds of each, uh, a two thirds majority of of each of uh, house, and then it must be approved by three quarters of the states. That's that's a fair old hurdle to 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 get over. But then again, that is kind of the whole point of a constitution. The point of a constitution is to stop people doing things quickly and in a willy nilly fashion, particularly. To protect people who might become the subject of attack by a majority, it is it's it is part of the checks and balances within the American situation constitution, or indeed any constitutional government. the front, the a constitution is a break. It is to, it is specifically designed to be awkward and to slow you down. It is a conservative thing, and because of that, you any country that has a constitution will have very sp- specific and special requirements to change the constitution, which are different to those requirements that you need to change a simple statute
0: law. So of a few areas where, I mean, in relation to the court, in relation to politics, there is a general understanding that you cannot be bound by a former decision, because you're sovereign, so you always have the right to change your mind. Constitutions are one of the few areas where it's like, yes, you can change your mind, in very exact circumstances, because particularly the American Constitution was written by people who believed that the ultimate expression of democracy is a lynch mob. Yeah, they were very suspicious of the demos. They they were
1: they were they were conscious of the, as of the, the the inherent instability potentially of relying on the people to come always to the right to the right opinions. They were very influenced by the Roman Republic. They were very influenced by people like Cato and, and Cicero's thinking, in the, and the Greeks as well, but particularly the Romans. And they were aware that historically republics had fallen because of the inability of the republic to manage internal those internal descents and the problem of the mob or the, or the demos or the hoi poloi, whatever you want to call them. So they created these checks and balances is what, what you can call them.
0: Checks and balances is the correct name, but it's also the nice way of saying it.
1: Yeah, it's a nice way of saying it. It's it's better than a man with a a chair and a whip keeping them back.
0: A constitution is ultimately a very large-scale recognition that you cannot trust people, and that people can't be trusted to vote on things.
1: And the American constitution is a a manifestation specifically of that idea. I mean, the American... The founding fathers did not base it on a system of. They were not utopians. They were not radical optimists. They recognized the fall, listen, the fallen and flawed nature of man, like what's it, Kant's fence that we like to quote, you know, that nothing, nothing straight should be made from the crooked timber of man. So they created, a, they tried to create a system, to fashion a system that would remediate this or protect people protect the republic from uh, the quirky things that people will tend to do if they're given the chance.
0: Like occasionally remove all of your rights and slaughter your family.
1: Yeah, or pass a thing called an enabling law, the Reichstag, and then go on and have all sorts of other fun laws.
0: Which are those things where people are like, oh, that could never happen again. We've done all that. Yet it seems to continue happening in states that allow it to. Yeah, it's funny that,
1: isn't it? The way... That the, even as we get more and more and more evolved,
0: it's almost like Michael, rather than being you know, the things that are stopping us from reaching our full potential, those restrictions are the things that are enabling us to get this far. <laughs> yeah. But of course, we'll get to a point where we find them limiting and we'll remove them, true judicial activism or whatever is popular at the time, and uh, then we'll fall on each other, red and tooth and claw.
1: So uh, at different times, having I mean- conversations with friends of mine about the, the positive or the negative impact of religion on society and they would talk about religious wars and intolerance and hatred and all the bad things that religion had brought. And my comment has also being said lads that may be true and I'm sure in fact it is true but by god I wouldn't like to you, you think this was bad I don't think you could imagine what this would have been like if people hadn't had the, the threat of hell hanging over them holding them back, chaining them in. You think this was bad? Oh, you think this couldn't have been worse? But that's my happy upbeat message for today.
0: As we are speaking of religion, uh, we may as well move on to this study, Michael.
1: Oh, study, Gary. Now,
0: now, please. I, I had not planned to talk about this today for the very simple reason that I'm not sure how much people enjoy. And now I will go through this in technical detail. But Michael was adamant that this be discussed.
1: Oh, I, I am adamant because I think that, uh, leaving aside the study itself, and I think the use of the word study, in this case, Gary, is beyond generous. I mean, I think it comes to the point that according study is in ex- itself an exercise in mendacity. But the manner of its reporting and this
0: use is, sh-
1: I mean, Shocking. Genuinely. Shocking.
0: We might as well tell people what the study is about. The, yes. the title of it was Non-Religious Teachers in Schools with a Religious Ethos in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. It was put together by two academics, uh, one from Queen's University Belfast, one from Mary Immaculate College, and it was released for a conference last year. And then it turns up in the Irish Times during the week.
1: Which is a weird thing by itself, by the way, this gap between its publication First as an academic paper and then it's a publication in the newspaper.
0: Yeah, so I mean it hasn't it's not peer reviewed, it's not anything like that, but it is an academic <laughs>
1: paper. Peer review. God, I'd like to see that go on peer review that.
0: But it is an academic paper, and the Irish Times reporting of it was that the the study had shown that non-religious teachers working in schools with a religious ethos. Uh, hide their true beliefs and are basically afraid of their peers and employers and in some cases students mm. and so i thought i would have a look into it
1: right first just to frame this guy when we go off for the ebi and we want to do a piece of research or polling about the people institute what's the first thing that we would ask when we're going to get a polling company to do a piece of research for us? What's the first thing we're interested in?
0: How much is this going to cost? <laughs>
1: yeah, after that. Sample size. Yeah, exactly, sample size, because sample size will, is largely impactful, is it not, on the accuracy
0: of the outcome? Actually, I will say from personal experience, I, from talking to polling companies, I think we ask them far more questions than they usually get.
1: This is, I feel sorry for the polling companies, dear listener that has to deal with Gary, because it's Gary that deals with them. And occasionally we will have conversations while this is going on. And I can just feel, as I imagine the conversations, because they're related to me, you can imagine the other poor bastard on the end of the phone, as his will to live gradually ebbs away, as Gary was. Yeah. Now, I just, I just have another few questions and if you just want go to paragraph seven section b number one addendum three now your sample size there your sampling technique Oh, God, these poor people. I mean, they're used to just Fianna Fowler or Finnegana coming up and saying, do a poll for us, will you? Anyway.
0: Yeah, we have, we have said it's representative. There will be no follow-on questions as opposed to, you say that you can avoid a non-response bias, but could you walk me through in detail the steps by which you'll avoid it? And then it publishes and you get no media attention and you realize, fuck it, we should have just surveyed six people.
1: So, first, thing you, 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 your sample size, and then you, you want to know how you how you sh- shape that sample, because presumably you want the sample to do what?
0: Yeah, you you have to, you will shape the question you want to ask. You will generally, and just how best to put that across, what questions will be used, things of that nature, you know, are there any confounding things that you have to take into account that you should ask about? Basically, just there is a general theme to how these things go, and it's pretty standard.
1: So you, you, you're, you're first in, Consider the number, of the, the size of the sample, but also the shape of the sample presumably is important. Who Who is in the sample, shall we say, and how you locate those.
0: Yeah, I mean, and then you'd have questions about, you know, if you're looking at particular areas or particular sections, you're like, okay, well, do we have a baseline? Do we have things like that? Um, it's, it's not terribly complicated, to be honest. You just need to have an idea of what you're doing and what you need to do to be sure you're getting something back you can actually use. Which is actually why it's so easy to go through these papers and figure out pretty much immediately if they're good or not. So go through it there.
1: Walk us through this paper.
0: Okay, so the first thing is the sample size is 15 people.
1: 15, that's the sample size. So what's the general population that we're dealing with that this is a representative sample of?
0: So this is post-primary schools particularly. The post-primary schools, I believe, have about 28,000 teachers.
1: So your your population is 28,000 so your sample is 15. Now Gary in your opinion as a pollster would you say that that's a sufficiently large sample to, re- to generate an informing re- result?
0: The only time you'd ever use a sample of that size if you wanted any sort of representative uh, result was if you wanted to conduct a focus group or if you had conducted uh, quantitative research and had then pulled out particular people. Uh, from that pool that you then wanted to do qualitative interviews with basically to highlight certain areas of the quantitative research.
1: So sample size 15 population 28,000. Yes, that's that's not um
0: that's not representative Michael. No. Now here's the interesting thing here and none of this is read is mentioned in the Irish Times article. It doesn't mention any of the methodological issues. Of those 15, only 14 were actually currently teaching when the uh, this study was done. One had already left the teaching profession. It does not say when that person left the teaching profession. Nor does it actually explicitly tell you which of the participants is no longer in the teaching profession. Now, you can work it out, but, like...
1: They've only managed a sample of 15. And of the 15, one of them isn't even actually uh, in teaching
0: anymore. Yeah, but see, that's not the best part, Michael. No. So this is entirely about non-religious teachers. Yes. Uh, one of them is a pagan.
1: Oh, so... Non religious as in but they actually don't they don't mean non religious, they mean non Christian. Is or non Catholic or what? Well,
0: no, they say non religious. Non religious is what they're doing. And then they included someone who is religious. Which oh, considering oh. you have fifteen people
1: <laughs> So you fifteen people and one one of them isn't isn't a te- isn't a teacher and one of them isn't non religious. So so we're now, that's two out of 15. So that's... That. Well,
0: I, I think the one who had left the teaching profession is the pagan. Ah,
1: well, you see, pagans can be very busy people.
0: You see, it doesn't tell you that, but that's just what I put together from the way certain quotes are, are spaced with comments in the text.
1: Which, by the way, you shouldn't be able to do. You should not be able to identify people from the thing on the basis of going, oh, right, so that's him. That's not, that's not good.
0: I, yeah, when I, was, when I was reading through it, there was a little bit of, you know, these people should be identified directly in it. But if you're not going to do that, I shouldn't be able to read your document and put it together. Yeah. So you have that. Then here's the really fun part, Michael. How did they get these people? You see, that's, that to be is a very interesting question. And this, I think, is, is probably one of the worst parts of it. They went, here's the exact quote, a number of established humanist organisations and social network groups were contacted. However, it proved challenging to find participants and the researchers ask the organisers to re-advertise, and then uh, they ask the communications officer in Mary Immaculate College to advertise the research on that platform. Then they use what's called snowball sampling, Michael. And you'll see the problem with this immediately. Yeah? Snowball sampling means you find a single participant, and then you ask them to identify other participants that they are aware of.
1: Oh my god!
0: So, there are times when this is actually quite useful. If you're looking at, um, you know, perhaps particular subcultures that are very difficult for outsiders to get into. Yeah. The problem is it always introduces a large possibility that you are only being given certain people rather than a a representative sample.
1: Which, if you're looking for a particular subculture, is not that big a problem because that's actually what you want. But that's not what you want here.
0: No, because you don't want people who are non-representative of the general, you know, yeah. non-religious teachers as a whole, such as Michael, by being members or associated with, you know, humanist organizations who tend to actively campaign against or, or for secular education. But isn't not to be a
1: smart arts here? And Gary, you know, that's something I hate. Smart arts is... Isn't there a reasonable argument to suggest that humanism is simply a form of secular religion?
0: Well, I I do make that uh, point in the piece I wrote about it. And if you class humanists as people who are actually religious, you have to remove another three people from the sample size. (laughs) Um, And I think you can make that argument. But the problem here is so they used sampling where they went through groups that have a position on this and therefore have an interest in the results of the research and then had those participants identify their further participants. And by the way, Michael, they don't say how many people they got through the humanist groups. It could be all of them.
1: Irish, the biggest of the Irish humanist groups has around 3,000 members.
0: That would be the Irish uh, the Humanist Association of Ireland. What's the name of the boss, our friend? I think. Are you thinking of Atheist Ireland and Michael Nugent? Uh, interestingly enough, I, I recently had calls to go through the uh, accounts of the Humanist Association. And I don't think they have thousands of members. I think they have five to seven hundred.
1: Right. So you 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 go to a group that has five to seven hundred members, if you look at the census figures and use that for a basis of their non-religious population, I would say five to seven hundred is not really representative of the non-religious population of the country.
0: I would also say, Michael, that the non-religious people who are likely to be in like the Humanist Association are likely notably different from the general non-religious population. I
1: think that that's a reasonable observation, Gary. But
0: here, here Michael is possibly the worst line in the research. Like it's a real hmm. And here it is. Permission was sought from the organisation and or network gatekeeper to share an invitation to become involved in the research. Now, there's a difference between going through these groups and letting these groups select and okay who you talk to. Yes. That Should never happen. You should never, ever give the okay to an organization of any type, let alone one that actively campaigns in the area you're involved in and has an interest in the uh, result.
1: No, I mean, obviously. I mean, just obviously. That's ridiculous.
0: So we have a report that has an incredibly low sample size, has, I would say, severe and fundamental methodological issues, couldn't even you get 15 non-religious people and accidentally involved a religious person in it and give these groups sign off on who they talk to. It's crap. It's one of the worst designed pieces of research I've ever seen in an Irish context. It's not the worst, but I think it's a strong number too. It depends what you mean. If surely, when well, you look at the, the quality of
1: the design of, of anything, the question you ask is, what was the purpose, what is the purpose of this object? And how successfully does this object execute the thing that we desire it to do? How, how good is it at doing it, what it's designed to do? And I would say, if you ask that question, Gary, this is a beautifully designed
0: piece of research. We can't know the intent of Oh, academics. Gary, we can guess. We can guess, but I think in all these things, I try and operate from a position of good faith.
1: You saying Are you saying Gary that a person a reasonable academic would have constructed a study in this fashion like this without having a certain outcome in mind because that's actually saying something much worse about the people involved.
0: I think people routinely overestimate the capability of the average academic.
1: I think Gary that this is a case of saying to somebody who is a master crap I mean, say a master joiner. And you give him a piece of wood, a hammer, and a nail and say, okay, can you please put that nail into this piece of wood? And they go, well, I'm going to try, but I'm going to fail. And I'm going to end up putting everything into my hand. will call that a success. This is not, you can overestimate capacities. But, okay, we will leave aside. We will leave aside intentionality because, as you say, we have no window to see into men's souls. We cannot know that. All we can know is what they do, not what they have in their heart. And what they've done is, appealing, is a steaming pile of shit as a, as a piece of research.
0: No, it's, it's, it's worse than useless. Um, and actually, one of the points where you, you're talking about the, the finding that teachers are fearful and things like that, it's something they don't touch on their, their research at all that I could see. And that is the idea of a baseline. So they are saying that non-religious teachers are scared of these things and hide these things about themselves. And they, they opine... That this is due to, you know, the religious ethos of the schools they're in, and the cultures of those schools, and a fear of missing out on promotions and jobs. Yes. The problem here is they don't know how the average teacher feels. So it may be that teachers, just as a group, are anxious about sharing personal matters with their peers, their employers, and their students. It may not be the case, but they don't know. They have assumed that the feelings of this group are different than the group as a whole without making any attempt to actually measure that.
1: It might also be the case that, Gary, that they have happened on a sample size where most of the... the, where they have an unusually high predilection to negative emotion, which you could also... you could describe more colloquially as being neurotic. And while they harbour these fears, that the fears are actually not founded in any kind of reality. And it's simply a manifestation of their personality rather than any kind of well-grounded, practical, empirically founded fear.
0: Sure, and everything about the study would bias it towards that option.
1: And yet, Gary, you say that none of these issues were raised in the report in the Irish Times. Uh, Can you remember off the top of your head, even paraphrasing what the headline of the Irish Times was?
0: Non-religious teachers hide beliefs for job opportunities study, and then... The, uh, the first line was, non-religious teachers are hiding or suppressing their beliefs over fears it could affect their employment or promotion prospects in schools with a religious ethos, according to research. According to research, now I think,
1: I, I don't want to be over it, like, but that's an important thing. I think that if you are a middle-of-the-road reader of the Irish Times and you read an article which says... According to
0: research, you're going to take that sentence seriously. Oh, Here's another one you might like. Teachers reported that religion or belief was undoubtedly a factor in appointments and promotions at their schools. In schools managed by Catholic authorities, candidates' beliefs were explicitly taken into consideration.
1: And where in the study does it demonstrate that that is true? Uh, nowhere. Does that sentence say was, brackets, was the perception of the people in the study, but we actually don't have any evidence to show whether they were right or wrong.
0: Uh, no, they, they didn't quite get around to including that part.
1: Oh, right. Well, sometimes you have a pressure, you know, 800 words has to be made into
0: 500 words. And there are points where it, it starts talk, the Irish Times piece, and I'll link this below so you can read it, it starts talking about the, the majority of teachers surveyed, but never quite gets around to saying that was 15 people. The majority of 15 people. As Gary said
1: at the head of this, Gary didn't really want to talk about this he'd written an article about it which i had read but i'd also come across the piece in the times and gone off and done a little bit of nosing around myself also i have a certain certain knowledge small knowledge of the sector and i think i wanted to talk about because to me this is egregiously bad gary egregiously bad this is and for a newspaper which likes to fashion itself consider itself to be you know the the paper of record and all of these people with their fucking fake news, this and fake news, that and fact checking and truth in the news and why don't people trust the media and Trump and QAnon on and because cons- and they produce this as new in a newspaper, Gary. A newspaper, I mean, does this not offend your sensibilities as somebody who's trying to work in journalism?
0: No, I, no, this is this is pretty, uh, pretty on brand to be honest, it's just. It's just, I think, genuinely disgraceful. I mean, I've read some things that have made my
1: blood boil regarding the accuracy and whatever and simple, to me, patent examples of, it, of campaigning rather than anything else, which you might later go on and win a prize for journalist of the year for. Who knows? Because people applaud the fact that you're a campaigner. But to pass this off, you know, one of the problems that... People, innocent people like myself, as when you're on your, your computer, or your phone, and you're flicking through the news, or even on the, the, the newspaper's websites, and you, uh, you, you see stories, and you don't notice a little bit at the top where it says sponsored content. And you're really thinking, God, these tablets made from this strange herb, only available in the Congolese rainforests, actually could help me lose 10 stone in the space of seven uh, months, without any, any trouble or pain of hunger. That's fantastic. And I'm reading it in the Irish Independent, so it must be true. And then you're, oh, sponsored content. Most of the stuff that passes out for sponsored content, I think, would be is better than this. But there is no sponsored content on this. There should be. This should come on with a big heading, sponsored content.
0: The interesting thing, actually, is that um, I have no idea why this came up. Like, this is newspapers place a really high emphasis on news on timeliness so how did a study from the end of last year suddenly appear five months into 2022
1: you see you're asking the question how I would, to me the, it is an interesting question but the question is why and I think that we are we maybe we, we may find out in the next few weeks that this it, we won't my sense Gary is that this is not going to be a unique story that similar stories, our stories that are first cousins and second cousins of this when it comes to the role of churches in schools, the nature and the function of, say, the voluntary school sector, will become, is going to be a, a source of great discussion in the coming months.
0: I suspect you might be right on that, Michael. I think there's a, people are gearing up.
1: Oh, yes, I can hear that. I can hear that the engines of the tanks are starting in the woods, carry across the border. They're coming. They're coming.
0: I was doing a study of uh, some of the groups that are active in this area. Usually, in the background, kind of don't put their name forward, and there are a surprising amount kind of groups like that in Ireland that uh, should we say interface with journalists and provide <laughs> them with sources and quotes that Inter- don't have
1: their names on them. Interface, yeah, okay,
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, they just they, they help journalists write things, yeah, without getting their names into the paper. Yes. Uh, but I was looking at one of these groups, and in the five months of the year so far, they have had as many media mentions as in the two years previous combined. Oh. And most of that has been in the last two months. No, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting, Gary? But I get the sense that there are a couple of groups in who have an interest in particular sections of uh, the education sector. Yes. Who are getting ready for something. Now, what that something is, I'm not entirely sure... But I would suspect we're going to be having a lovely, lovely media campaign on the question of religious schools Mm. over the rest of this year. And that may that may end up in having a lovely referendum. We may even have a citizens' assembly to discuss this and other issues. Wouldn't that be lovely? But do you think groups would do that, Michael? Come together to plan something like that and involve journalists in its propagation and just not tell anyone?
1: Not in Ireland, Gary. Maybe in the Ukraine. But not in Ireland. Anyway, I think it's such a lovely day. We should let the people go out and enjoy it. All the best. Bye-bye.